So the title of my talk is The Buried Life, Connecting with Self, Other and the Third Order of Consciousness. So I'm going to try and sort of bring together some of what uh, Sona has said and some of what Vijamala has said and then try and sort of say a little bit about, about what I want to say as well. Uh, and I, I'm, I appreciate what uh, Vishanka said about me, about my talks, but I'm, I'm a better writer than I am a talker. So I do write my talks. So in a way, it's a bit more of a paper than a, than a talk. So there you go. So on Friday, Sona introduced, introduced us to the third order of consciousness. This morning, I'm going to explore this phenomenon in a slightly different way. I'm going to come at it from a very particular angle, in some ways a very personal angle. I'm going to talk about the third order of consciousness as my raison d'etre, my reason for being. Although I wouldn't have framed it as the third order of consciousness, um, I realise on reflection that it is the reason why I took on the role of chairman of the MBC. In fact, I have shown this before. But I'm going to, I've shown this before in a talk, I'm going to do it again now. This is the reason why I agreed, or one of the reasons why I agreed to be chairman of the MBC. <coughs> so it's sort of, uh, it's a silhouette of several people, and they're all looking towards the sun, uh, a setting sun, uh, a sun that represents Amitabha, for me, my highest ideal. And it's sort of, the, they're together, but they're together on the basis of the highest ideal. They're all pointing towards the highest ideal. They couldn't be more together. It's not possible to be more together than this sort of togetherness. So that's the reason why I'm... And I painted this. I painted this um, in bed, when I was in bed, <laughs> at Gukuloka, um about four or five years ago. Anyway, I said that's the reason why I've become chairman of the NBC, and I think it's the reason why probably everyone becomes a chairman of a Buddhist centre. It's what I yearn for, my dream, my fantasy, my aspiration. And it's completely out of my control. I can't make it happen. At least I can't make it happen on my own. However, if we all yearn for the third order of consciousness, if we all share that dream, that fantasy, that aspiration... If we all continually turn our mind to it and cultivate it as an aspiration, and if each of us is willing to play our individual part, willing to take responsibility for ourselves and our own spiritual development, as well as taking a few risks, then together, just maybe, we can make it happen. I actually have quite a lot of confidence that most people, if not all of us, sitting in this room do want the same thing, even if we don't know it yet. One of my heroes is the psychologist Carl Rogers. And uh, some time ago, probably about 50 years ago, he observed and stated that what is most personal, what's most deeply hidden within our hearts, is actually what's most universal. It sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? What feels most personal and most private to each of us is often what we have most in common with the rest of humanity. And I know from my own experience that that is true.
Most of the differences between you and me, between any of us in this room, in fact between any of us on this planet, are pretty superficial. We all have so much in common, more than we could ever imagine. However, most of the time, I am, we are, busy, multitasking, preoccupied with the thousand and one things that we have to do, communicating with our 600 plus friends on Facebook or Twitter across the world. The sheer volume and quantity of our interactions mean, well, so much for, so for much of the time anyway, mean that they cannot be anything other than superficial. Sadly, I think we live in the most superficial of times. I remember when I was at school in the early 80s, home computers were just beginning to, beginning to take off, and we were sold the promise, I was sold the promise of more leisure time, more time with my friends, more time with my family, more time with the people I cared for. The reality for most of us, of course, has been the exact opposite. What's actually happened is that we now tend to do more things more quickly. The pace of our lives seems to be ever-increasing. Technology means that we pack more in to the finite time available. Our lives are more rather than less full and busy. We've inadvertently traded quality for quantity. In the space of 40 years, our society has become incredibly superficial. And I would argue the nature of so many, so many of our relationships have also become superficial too. When our lives are full and busy, we just don't have the time to notice or appreciate the nuances of someone's character. Instead, we just notice the froth of their persona. The contrived personality, the manufactured packaging that they present to the world. Consequently, what we most readily notice when we interact with others are superficial, superficial similarities and differences. And when we notice a difference, what happens? When we notice a difference, we compare and contrast. Internally, something in me says, I'm not like you, you're like that, and I'm like this. And when this happens, there's a contraction. And the sense of, or the, self, the sense of I, um, sorry, the sense of self, I guess you could say, the sense of identity, contracts and solidifies. And when this happens, a value judgment usually kicks in, which, generally, values my own identity favourably against the other. And this whole process of comparison, differentiation, contraction, judgment, can take place within seconds, creating the illusion, or perhaps more acutely, more accurately, I should say, the delusion of separateness from the other. However, when I'm not glued to my mobile phone, my emails, Facebook, Twitter, and everything else, and I'm not running around like a headless chicken, which I often am, I hasten to add, when I'm more in touch with my depths, and when I'm more congruent and willing to connect with the felt truth of my experience in the moment, and when others are willing and able to do the same, what I almost always experience is resonance, an affinity, a connection, an enlarging and inclusive expansiveness. The differences and separateness between us melt away, and what is felt is meta or love.
In explaining why I think you might want what I want, I think I've already begun to tell you what I want. I want, and I think we all want, to feel intimately connected to ourselves and to each other. We all want to experience love or metta flowing through our lives, flowing through each other. And the collective manifestation of this in the Sangha is a third order of consciousness. So there you go. That's the top and bottom of it. I suppose I could just stop there, and that would probably be more than enough to discuss in our groups. But you might feel a bit short-changed. <laughs> so I'm going to say a bit more. So over the next half hour or so, I'm going to... Well, I'm going to read a, a long poem as a, way, as a way into facing the dukkha, or looking at the dukkha of existential loneliness, or aloneness. Then I'm going to inquire more deeply into the nature of the third order of consciousness, and how it potentially offers a resolution to existential aloneness and a way to connect with reality. Then I'll look at, well, we'll discover some ways and means that each of us can encourage the development of the third order of consciousness and perhaps look at a few challenges or near enemies to it. Finally, I'll conclude by summarising the main points of what I said and just exhorting you to be wonderful. So what I'm going to do now is read a poem. It's a poem by Matthew Arnold, and for a long time it's been my favourite poem. It's a poem about deep longing. And I think, I suspect the longing described in the poem um, is a longing that we all have. It is quite a long poem. It's going to take a few minutes to read. It's also, I don't know, it's probably 150 years old. Um, so it's in quite flowery Victorian English. So... Just get comfortable and, you know, concentrate. <laughs> and the poem's called The Buried Life. Light flows our war of mocking words. Sorry, light flows our war of mocking words. And yet, behold, with tears mine eyes are wet. I feel a nameless sadness o'er me roll. Yes, yes, we can jest. We know, we know that we can smile. But there is something in this breast to which thy light words bring no rest, and thy gay smiles no anodyne. Give me thy hand and hush a while, and turn those limpid eyes on mine. And let me read there, love, thy inmost soul. Alas, is even love too weak to unlock the heart, unlock the heart and let it speak? Are even lovers powerless to reveal to one another what indeed they feel? I knew the mass of men concealed their thoughts for fear that if revealed they would by other men be met with blank indifference or with blame reproved. I know they lived and moved, tricked in disguises alien to the rest of men and alien to themselves, and yet the same heart beats in every human breast. Be we, my love, doth alike a spell benumb, our hearts, our voices, must we too be dumb? 
Ah, well for us, if even we, even for a minute, can get free. Our heart, and have our lips unchained, for that which seals them hath been deep ordained. Fate which foresaw how frivolous a baby man would be, by what distractions he would be possessed, how he would pour himself in every strife, and well nigh change his own identity, that it might keep from his capricious play his genuine self, and force him to obey, even in his own despite his being's law, bade through the deep recesses of our breast, the unregarded river of our life, pursue with indiscernible flow its way, and that we should not see the buried stream and seem to be, eddying at large in blind uncertainty, though driving on with it eternally. Not long now. <clears throat> but, but often in the world's most crowded streets, but often in the din of strife, there rises an unspeakable desire after the knowledge of the buried life. A thirst to spend our fire and restless force in tracking out our true original course. A longing to inquire into the mystery of this heart which beats so wild, so deep in us, to know whence our lives come and where they go. And many a man in his own heart then delves, but deep enough, alas, none ever minds. And we have been on many thousand lines, and we have shown on each spirit and power, but hardly have we, for one little hour, been on our own line, have we been ourselves. Hardly had the skill to utter one of all, the nameless feelings that course through our breast. But they course on forever unexpressed. And long we try in vain to speak and act our hidden self, and what we say and do is eloquent, is well, but tis not true. And then we will no more be racked with inward striving, and demand of all the thousand nothings of the hour their stupefying power. Ah, yes, and they benumb us all at our call. Yet still, from time to time, vague and forlorn, from the soul's subterranean depth unborn, as from an infinitely distant land, come airs and floating echoes, and convey a melancholy into all our day. Only, but this is rare, when a beloved hand <coughs> excuse me, is laid on ours, when jaded with the rush and glare of the interminable hours, our eyes can in another eyes read clear, when our world-deafened ear is by the tone, tones of a loved voice caressed, a bold shot, a, bold is sh a bolt is shot back somewhere in our breast, and a lost pulse of feeling stirs again, the eyes sink inward, and the heart lies plain. And what we mean we say, and what we would we know, a man becomes aware of his life's flow and hears its winding murmur, and he sees the meadow where it glides, the sun, the breeze. And there arrives in a lull, a lull in the hot race, 
wherein he doth for ever chase that flying and elusive shadow rest. An air of coolness plays upon his face, and an unwonted calm pervades his breast, and he thinks he knows the hills where his life rose, and the sea where it goes. Sorry, that poem always makes me cry. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> so, the poem is about our existential aloneness. And the all-too-often desire, the unfulfilled desire, to be met. To be really met by another human being. The desire for the buried life, by which Arnold means our deepest feelings, our desires our values and aspirations, to be heard, seen and acknowledged, to be understood and ultimately to be affirmed by another. Carl Rogers, my hero, once said that he believed that individuals nowadays are probably more aware of their inner loneliness than has ever been true in history. And he said that about 50 years ago. And I think that comment is probably more true now than it was then. Somewhere else, Rogers said, When a person realises he's been deeply heard, his eyes moisten. I think in some real sense he's weeping for joy. It's as though he was saying, Thank God, somebody's heard me. Somebody knows what it's like to be me. I wonder how many of us can relate to this. I know I can. In fact, that poem does that for me. I feel that poem has heard me. And that's why I sort of feel quite emotional when I read it or hear it. The other day I was talking to Aparajita over lunch and he said to me, can you remember the first time that you... I said, I asked him if he could remember the first time he really felt heard and he asked me. And I could remember. uh, I hadn't thought about this for a long time, but I could remember the time. And it's something that took place 32 years ago. Uh, And I imagine the reason I could remember it so clearly is because it was so significant to me at the time. It was different from what I'd previously experienced. At the time I was 18 and I was studying at art college. And my class went on a week-long painting field trip to the Lake District. I think we were in Buttermere. And we were staying in a converted barn. And I remember one night sitting up in the rafters in the dark with a few of my classmates. We talked through the night until it started getting light and the dawn chorus began. We shared our lives, our secrets, our hopes, our fears. I don't remember crying then, but I do remember that others did. But I do remember shivering and my teeth chattering with what I can only describe as the bliss, the ecstasy, perhaps what I'd now call pretty, uh, that, arose, that arose out of being so open, so honest, so vulnerable with others who were being the same and who were able to hear me. And what I felt was love. Not a love directed at anyone in particular, but a, perva- a pervasive love that just seemed to flow through and between us. It was as if all the facades, the defences, all the barriers that usually separated us had dropped away. All the dross had dropped away. And all that was left was love. So 
So as I've said, I think I can remember this because it was so unusual. There's certainly been long, long stretches of time in my life since then when I've experienced existential aloneness. And there are still times when I experience existential aloneness, but I'm pleased to say that it's a lot less often than in the past. To a greater or lesser degree, I think most of us experience existential aloneness. It's just a fact of life. In my role as an order member and as role of chairman of the Buddhist Centre, I meet lots of people, I meet loads of people, more people than I've ever met in my life before. (laughs) And what I hear again and again and again, both explicitly and implicitly, is the desire to be more deeply met. It seems that everyone wants to be deeply seen, deeply heard, deeply understood. The reason, the reason psychotherapy is helpful seems to be because of the empathic relationship that that involves. The more deeply a therapist feels and accurately conveys empathy, and the more ac- acutely the client perceives this as genuine and accurate, the more he or she feels re- the more he or she feels relieved of his or her suffering. When we experience empathy. We feel we're not alone in or with our suffering. What this suggests to me is that more, more often than not, it is the loneliness or the, or the sorry the loneliness or aloneness, the absence of deep and meaningful connection with, or the sense of separateness from another human being, that is at, that is at the root of so much of our existential suffering. But this sort of suffering isn't only experienced following a tragedy or a trauma, although it's probably more salient and obvious then. For many of us, <coughs> sorry, for many of us, it's constantly simmering away in the background of our lives as an uncomfortable niggle that we either choose to ignore, stoically accept as inevitable, or simply cover over with a life full of, full of distractions and busyness. Besides following a personal tragedy or trauma, however, the other time in our lives when I think this existential aloneness or loneliness can be felt acutely is when we feel alone with our spiritual aspirations. (coughs) When we feel spiritually on fire but lack anyone to share our idealism or our inspiration with. This too can be extremely painful. Joseph Brotherton um, was a 19th century MP for Salford. Uh, He was also one of the founders of the Vegetarian Society. And he once said that a man's wealth cannot be measured by the quantity of his possessions, but rather by the fewness of his wants. Which I think is quite dharmic. I know from my own experience that the pleasure of acquiring material possessions tends to be short-lived and is often compensatory. If I'm lonely then I might, and sometimes do, resort to a bit of retail therapy to take the edge off things. But when I feel intimately connected to others on the basis of what we both find, or or we all find, meaningful, when when others have resonated with what's most deeply alive in me, then I've been happy to live quite frugally, and with very little indeed. It's this state of being that the third positive precept alludes to, a way of being that's pervaded by stillness, simplicity and contentment. Uh, 
It is this state of being that I want in my life. And it's the state of being that I want to encourage for our Sangha. It may be interesting to reflect for a moment why I felt able to live more simply when my life has been imbued with deeper meaning and shared with others. It's possibly because at those times when I've experienced more meaning, I've simultaneously, um, well, there's simultaneously been um, a reduced or weakened sense of myself. I've literally been less self-conscious. And consequently, there's been less of a definite sense of somebody wanting something or wanting stuff. I equate the experience of meaning with pleasure, not the hedonic pleasure of, of the senses, but the, what's known as the eudaimonic, eudaimonic pleasure of meaning itself. Meaning itself is pleasurable. Think about a time when you were deeply unhappy. Perhaps a time when you were extremely angry, jealous or full of hate. Did you have a strong, contracted sense of self or a looser, expansive sense of self? Now think about a time when, you were, when your life was imbued with meaning. Did you have a contracted sense of self then or was it an expansive sense of self? It seems that a strong sense of self and dukkha go hand in hand. There are different sides of the same coin. Dukkha is the self, or the sense of a fixed self. Conversely, a weakened, more expansive sense of self and joy also seem to go together. And the more ethical the basis of that joy is, the more our fixed sense of self becomes attenuated. So, returning to the poem... I believe that most of us have a buried life, an unlived life, that, <coughs> excuse me, that perhaps we might just risk living if the external conditions were supportive and we could muster enough courage to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. The external conditions I'm talking about here are other people, other people who are willing to dive into the depths of our minds, people who are interested enough in us to recognise and draw out our unfulfilled potential. As the poem makes clear, such conditions are extremely rare. However, this is the experience, this is the experience that Sangha could be. Perhaps some of us already experienced our Sangha like this, I hope so. But I believe our Sangha has the potential to be so much more than it already is more than we can even begin to imagine. I think if we're serious about living a meaningful spiritual life, if we're serious about enlightenment, then this exalted level of Sangha is what we should aspire to and cultivate. A Sangha that's open and receptive to reality. Such a Sangha, as Sona has already told us, is what Sangha calls the third order of consciousness. And it all sounds a bit cosmic. And it is. So what I'd like to do is, is have a bash at explaining a few concepts, a few ideas uh, that relate to the third order of consciousness and, and 
relate to the third order of consciousness and our sort of banded about our movement and, and in the Dharma, just so we can sort of get a sense and place um, the third order of consciousness. So the first term is the Dharma Niyama. So a Niyama is a sort of natural law, a natural sort of, a sort of a natural force. So the Dharma Niyama is the reality, the reality principle with a capital R. And it's always at work in the universe, and it's intrinsic to the universe. It's mysterious. It's that which is not samsara. It can be distinguished from the other niyamas, or the other natural laws that operate. And these operate on the physical level, the biological level, the psychological level, and the karmic level, or the ethical willed level, or planes. Now that's an inadequate description or explanation of the Dharma Niyama, but I'm not sure I can say that much more about it. I suppose at least some, some of us have at least had some sense of it, otherwise we probably wouldn't be here. <clears throat> so, that's the first idea, the first concept, the Dharma Niyama. The second is the suprapersonal force, which may not be so familiar to some of you. Uh, this is a term that Sangharakshita coined, I think at least gave a specific, a particular meaning to. And this is the experience of being affected or impacted upon by something transcendental, or by the transcendental. Something higher than oneself. It's a sense of an external power intervening in, or through, one's life and experience. I suppose we could say that this is the felt experience of the Dharma Niyama. And then we've got the Bodhicitta, There's lots of descriptions of the bodhicitta. But my sense of it is that it is the emotional component of the Dharma Niyama, or the superpersonal force. It's that overwhelmingly strong experience of love or compassion that motivates one to go beyond oneself, literally beyond one's limited and fixed sense of self, for the sake of others, the sake of others who are suffering. So there we have it. We've got the Dharmaniya, the superpersonal force, the Bodhicitta. And in a way, they're all pointing to the same thing, but from slightly different perspectives. <clears throat> Actually, uh, uh, yes, here we go. So, yeah, I'm just going to say something. I've got time. So, the, yesterday, uh, Vijamala talked about her experience of the golden light coming into her. So that, we could say, that was an experience of the, the Dharma Niyama, or superpersonal force, or maybe even Bodhicitta, all three possibly. And I have to say, I don't think that experience is that unusual, as she said. I think if we are in the right conditions, and we're sensitive enough, we can all experience that. Because the Dharma Niyama, the superpersonal force, the Bodhicitta is always there. It's always there. It's just waiting for an opportunity um, and I think I've experienced it, um, and I do occasionally experience it still. Um, a couple of years ago, as most of you know, I was living at Gukiloka, the men's ordination retreat centre in southern Spain, up in the mountains, um, which was fantastic conditions for, for meditation, which is, you know, I was doing loads of meditation at the time. Anyway, uh, I kept a journal, I still keep a journal, and... On the 13th of May, four years ago, so it's four years ago last week, 
um, I wrote in my journal, you know, did the, did, this morning did the Meta Bhavna, something like this, it was like this, something, I did the Meta Bhavna this morning, focused on everyone in the community, there wasn't that many of us, uh, but there was a place for all, all of them in the Meta Bhavna. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> anyway, I also wrote, what I felt was, I just felt a lot of gratitude and appreciation for, for those men, for the men that I was living with. And then what happened was an image, a rose, came to me. And the image, this is a photograph from a drawing that I drew my journal on that day. So that's the drawing. So what it is, is this is the image that just came to me. Uh, I just felt a lot of love, actually, in um, doing the Metabhavna. And the image is Amitabha. So Amitabha is my, my sadhana practice, my visualisation practice. Sorry, there you go. And a beam of light is coming down from Amitabha into the top of my head. And I'm standing naked, sort of with my arms stretched out like this. And then there's just like a, a flood of water coming out of my chest. And I'm, I'm in a desert. I'm in a desert environment. But what's happening, this water is just pouring and pouring out and creating a sort of an oasis around me. And on the edge of this oasis, uh, flowers and vegetation is growing. Um, and it was just a lovely image, and that's why, that's why I, I drew it in my diary at the time, my journal. And then sometime later I thought, actually I want to... There's something about that seemed quite special. And I, you know, it, I, I had the sense of, yeah, the, something was coming through me. It wasn't me, it was just something coming through me and this love was just coming through me. I was just like a vehicle, a conduit for love. Uh, and then sometime later, I, I, I wanted to paint it, do something more with it. Uh, this is not going to be very clear for you. So I did another painting based on it, which is quite abstract. Uh, same thing, really. Same thing, but, but more abstract. And I really like the feel of this painting. It sort of, it sort of conveyed the emotional content of what I experienced. But there was still something missing. There was still something missing. And, uh, and I just had this urge to paint the same thing again, but in, a, in an urban environment. And if I, I, I put this painting up in the exhibition um, last year, at the art exhibition at the centre. I had this sense of, actually, I wanted, that, I wanted to do that same painting, but with, like, terraced houses behind me, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted it to be in a northern, you know, red brick sort of context. So that's what I painted, uh, and I was happy with that painting. It's not, it's not a work of art, by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, it worked for me. And then later in the year, I, I got the invitation, uh, I think from Daimala, uh, to apply for the role as chairman of the Manchester Buddhist Centre. I'd never have dreamt of, of being a chairperson anywhere, doing anything like that, uh, or working in the institutions of the order in that sort of way. And it, again, it was that, part, it was that painting that said, yes, that's, that's the thing to do. That is the right thing to do. I didn't know what I was going to do next. And then it was almost as if the universe came to me and said, this is what you need to do. And it was only a few weeks ago that I realised that there was this painting, and this was before I'd had any invitation to apply for the role of chairman in Manchester. It's just, I, I realised, ah, gosh, so often the Manchester Centre is described as an oasis. Um, 
So this sort of painting conveyed the oasis, and the last painting conveyed Manchester, you know, with the red bricks. It just sort of seemed to come together. Of course, it could just be a coincidence. (laughs) But I choose to think it's not. Okay. So, Dharmanirma, Superpersonal Force, Bodhicitta, and the Third Order of Consciousness. So prior to coming or arriving at the term of the Third Order of Consciousness, Sangha actually struggled to find a word that described the sort of Sangha that he envisioned. The closest that he could come up with was the Russian word Sobranost, coined by the linguist Komyakov. The word describes the close sense of connectedness or togetherness brought about by the experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the Russian Orthodox Church. Komyakov states that the word, this is a quote, denotes a perfect organic fellowship of redeemed people united by faith and love, which he contrasted with the sort of the um, conformist unity, unity and authoritarianism of the Roman Catholic Church and the sort of individualism at the other end of the spectrum of the Protestant Church. Jai Rava, uh, who's written on the subject, he's written a blog on it, uh, which I found very useful. Uh, so I, I owe some gratitude to Jai Rava if he watches this video. He says, the third, the third order of consciousness begins to emerge when the individual realises that others share their values and ideals and they begin to live in virtuous harmony on the basis of those shared ideals or values. Sorry, This may include working together to achieve goals, like packing up the shrine room this morning. Wasn't that wonderful? Or like Anuruddha and his companions, when they may just live together in harmony, blending like milk and water. The individual will not the individual will is not lost or submerged, but there's a coincidence of wills because of, because of an engagement with the highest ideals and values of each. Like Komyakov, we seek not an enforced unity, nor complete independence, but mutually responsive interdependence. So I've sort of drawn out six key points from that quote, from uh, what Jairov says, and and also uh, what Komyakov says. So the first is, first and foremost, uh, is that the third order of consciousness comprises individuals who have confidence in and live by their own values. So our own values. Secondly, they know that they have these values in common with other individuals. Thirdly, they connect with and relate to these other individuals on the basis of those common values. Fourthly, they voluntarily and harmoniously coexist with other individuals or these individuals on the basis of the highest common denominator, their shared ideals and values rather than the lowest common denominator, which would be group membership and attachment to the group, uh, sorry, an attachment to the sense of group identity. Consequently, their individuality is retained and in no way compromised. Fifthly, they cohere and exist for no other reason than, than because it is natural, natural in the highest sense to do so. In joining together and cooperating, 
cooperating in accordance with their common values and ideals, a synergy is created and something mysterious emerges that is greater than the sum of its parts. And sixthly, lastly, the individuals involved are neither dependent nor are they independent. They've transcended both of these limited and ultimately deluded ways of being. Instead, they are interdependent, which means they understand and take responsibility for the fact of their inherent connectedness to one another. This is a way of being that is most congruent with the nature of reality itself. Clearly, the third order of consciousness is spiritual community or Sangha at its very best. It's the sort of spiritual community that is most receptive to the Dharma Nirma, the suprapersonal force, and the arising and partaking in of the Bodhicitta. It is for this reason that the symbol and myth of our order is the thousand-armed Avalokiteshra. Each order member is an individual hand, each holding a unique implement that will in some way alleviate the suffering of the world. And of course, each hand and arm is a limb of the same Bodhisattva, the same embodiment of compassion which unites them all. Each is what Arthur Kessler calls a holon, a whole part. They are whole as individuals in and of themselves, but they are also simultaneously and inextricably connected to something that is bigger than themselves too. They are both a whole and a part. So let's look at what might encourage the development of the third order of consciousness. When Buddhism migrated from China to Japan, uh, the form that it took was Zen. Um, and this was the Zen was the religion or way that well it was a preserved it was sort of preserved for the elite, the educated elite in Japan. Only the elite really practiced it. But sometime later, Shin or Pure Land Buddhism developed in Japan. And in contrast to Zen, in contrast to Zen, it was an approach for the bombu. The bombu, the ordinary, deluded, foolish beings, the common folk. In fact, to effect effectively practice Pure Land Buddhism, the practitioner has to come to terms with the fact that he or she is bombu. <laughs> yeah. But the word, just the, well, I think uh, Vijamala talked about uh, onomatopoeia, and uh, there you go, bombu. Coming to terms with the fact, at least from an enlightened perspective, that one is foolish and ignorant seems to be an integral part of the path. In a sense, it is the path. Over the past few years, I've really begun to appreciate that this is the way I need to proceed if I'm going to make any further progress on the Buddhist path. The benefits of this approach mean that I don't have to be or try to be anything special, which is what Vishanka talked about as he introduced me. And when, we, when you take on, um, when you get ordained, you take on, a, as I said before, a visualisation or sadhana practice. And I'd just like to show you this picture, which is, um, actually I painted this on a retreat last year, I drew it really, so it's sort of coloured pencils. So this is my image of Amitabha. Um, he's wearing a t-shirt and a pair of jeans, and he's in the posture of royal ease. Um, he's holding up a flower uh, on one hand and the other hand's into earth-touching mudra. It's not a typical uh, depiction of Amitabha. 
But when we, when we take on a visualization practice, what we're told to do is also use that visualization as a sense of who you are at the end of the path. Yeah? And this is who I want to be at the end of the path. I want to be myself. I want to be ordinary. I don't want to be something special. I just want to be myself most deeply. And myself most deeply is my aspirations. Um, and that, that speaks volumes. To, this speaks to me, this picture. Um, anyway, and it also says about something about if I am bamboo, I can't relate to something that's perfect. I have to relate. I'm, I'm having to chunk down a little bit sort of perfection so that I can relate to it. And that's why I've, I've, I have this picture. I call it Blue Jean Amitabha. <laughs> anyway. So being bamboo means that I don't have to be anything other than what I actually am. An ordinary, fallible human being who, for the most part, is just doing his best. Sometimes I get it right. Sometimes probably more often than not, I get it wrong. I'm a mess in progress, and that's all right. Isn't that fantastic? Isn't that wonderful? To just be a mess in progress, I think that's okay. You might not think it's okay that I'm a mess. (laughs) (laughs) What a relief not to feel that I have to be better than I am right now. Accepting that we are bamboo means that we were more likely to be completely honest, uh, completely authentic and real, both with ourselves and with each other. And this is the basis of becoming an individual. So I'm going to read a, a, very, a very brief poem by Amita Shuri. And this is called To Be. I want to be with myself whether alone or with someone else. First, I have to be with me. I want to be with you, to see you and let you see me. First, I have to be with me. I want to be honest and true, to open my heart And let my heart open to you. First I have to be with me. I want to love, to love you. And let you love me. First I have to be, sorry, first I have to love me. That was a beautiful poem. So, let's return to being bamboo. Accepting and loving ourselves as bamboo does not, as Sona said on Friday, give us an excuse for complacency. No, not at all. It just means acknowledging and accepting that we comprise both a leading edge and a trailing tail in our spiritual lives. Our leading edge might be our disciplined daily meditation practice, and our trailing tail might be our bad temper. Both are aspects of who and what we are right now, and both somehow have to be included and integrated into our spiritual lives. We must include all of ourselves, not just the parts we think we like or think that might be acceptable to others, but 
And this is important. We have, we have a responsibility to continually maintain and further cultivate our leading edge. If we keep moving that forward, then sooner or later, the trailing tail will follow. So I hope I haven't given, uh, given the impression that being authentic is easy. It isn't. Being authentic means allowing ourselves to be vulnerable. And this isn't simply a matter of will. Our willingness to risk vulnerability often depends on the, sup- on the supportiveness or otherwise of the context in which we live. Ideally, what we want and need to be vulnerable, sorry, what we want to need to be vulnerable and authentic is a context where there's trust. Hmm. Are you okay for me to carry on for a little bit? Is yeah. okay? So what do I mean by trust? Well, trust comprises two aspects, two elements. And they are competence and caring. And I guess we could describe competence as wisdom, and we could describe caring as compassion. They can't really be separated. But let's pretend that they can. So... Let's imagine in politics, okay? I'm going to stereotype our two political parties. I think the Tories are a competent party, okay? They, they know how to manage the economy, but they don't really have a heart. You don't have to agree with this. <laughs> Labour have a heart, but they're not, that great, they're not that competent at managing the economy, okay? What I'd like is to be able to trust a party that can do both, Okay? I want competence and I want caring. I want wisdom and I want compassion. It's both that are required for me to trust, really. If someone if something's just competent but not caring, they come across as being an expert. If somebody is caring but not competent, they come across as nice. Okay? And sometimes a bit insipid and ineffectual. I want both. I need both to really trust. And that's what we need in our Sangha. That's what, that's what I need for our Sangha to be. And that's what I need to be. Clearly, placing ourselves in optimal conditions and context is essential to progress in the spiritual life. Sangharakshita has emphasised this again and again. And for this reason, I think we would do well to think about the cultivation of positive conditions, such as a fantastic Buddhist centre, where we can practice together as a core Dharma practice. Context is practice, alongside, of course, the cultivation of ethics, meditation and wisdom. Let's not forget also that we are the contexts and conditions for each other. Our thoughts, speech and actions don't just affect us, they affect the people around us and vice versa. This has been said in previous talk. I think it would be fair to say that the sum of our thoughts, speech and behaviours is our Sangha. Therefore, if we want our Sangha to be even better than it already is, if we want to experience it as the third order of consciousness, then we, as much as anyone else, play an integral part in making that happen. It's for this reason that I don't primarily think of myself as a chairman. 
I think of myself as a community worker. And I think it would, we would do well to think of all ourselves, all of us to think of ourselves as community workers. Creating the best possible context for practice. Because that is what, really mean, that is what it really means to be an effective member of the Sangha. If we want to gauge the extent to which we're taking responsibility for and contributing to a healthy and vibrant spiritual context at the MBC, we could ask ourselves the following three questions, and perhaps we could ask this in our groups. One, how am I sharing my inspiration and drawing out the inspiration of others? Two, how am I creating intensity in my practice of the Dharma? And three, how am I cultivating and maintaining intimacy with others who share my values and ideals. I believe that a thriving Sangha has these three eyes. It's inspired, it's intense, and it's intimate. Very nearly at the end. You want me to repeat? The three, the three, the three questions are, how am I sharing my inspirations and drawing out the inspirations of others? How am I creating intensity? And how am I cultivating intimacy? So I hope it's clear what I think encourages the third order of consciousness and what contributes towards its creation. But there are things that get in the way of it as well. I'm not going to spend much time on this because I've nearly finished. What is it that, as Sona said, Sona's described as, stops letting the light in? We all have unique and different conditioning, so I guess it's going to be slightly different for each of us. However, there are a few general things to watch out for, some near enemies that apply to almost all of us. I think one of them is individualised spirituality. What I mean by individualised spirituality is cherry-picking the Dharma, choosing what suits you on the basis of personal preferences, rather than engaging with it in its totality and engaging with it in connection and, collect and in a collectivity with others. Another near enemy, I think, is, is placing belonging, the desire for belonging, before the, des before the desire for truth. Truth, the search for truth, striving for truth, has to come before the desire for belonging, if we are to have a, a living Sangha. Another near enemy is setting our sights too low. Just going for psychological relief rather than liberation. A nice Sangha rather than a meaningful sangha. And lastly, I think that the final near enemy is, and in a way it relates to the setting our sights too low, is playing it safe, not taking risks. This little poem by Arthur Ward, it goes like this. To laugh is to risk appearing a fool. To weep is to appear sentimental, is to risk appearing sentimental. To reach out to another is to risk involvement. To expose feelings is to risk exposing your true self. To place your ideals and your dreams before a crowd 
is to risk their loss. To love is to risk not being loved in return. To live is to risk dying. To hope is to risk despair. To try is to risk failure. But risks must be taken because the greatest hazard in life is to not risk anything. The person who risks nothing, does nothing, has nothing, is nothing. He may avoid suffering and sorrow, but he cannot learn, feel, change, grow and live. So my conclusion. Yesterday, Vijimala talked very movingly about generosity. The, bener- the benefits of generosity for ourselves, for others and the world. As she said, it is the first thing, the easiest thing we can do if we want to become bodhisattvas. She talked, and I've elaborated upon, how we are conditions for each other. We, you, me, all of us, make up our sangha, which is surely the most important context, the context for our spiritual lives. We can be generous to the sangha in all sorts of ways, and we can give in all sorts of ways. But the most valuable, the most precious act of generosity is to give oneself, all of oneself, to our spiritual life, to each other, and to the creation of Sangha. But in order to give oneself, we need to be ourself, and to be really ourself. And to be ourself, we need to be in support of conditions, so there is a symbiotic relationship. We need the Sangha. And the Sangha needs us. A dynamic that, when it gathers momentum and spirals, and spirals up, the, super, sorry, the superficial differences that separate us from one another fall away. And what emerges is the third order of consciousness. My exhortation to you is to mine your buried life. Take the risk to live from that place deep within you that is vulnerable and soft and true. Because that is your potential. That is the life <coughs> that is the life you are meant to live. That is the life we are all meant to live. And it's beautiful. And this is I'm just gonna finish on a quote. This is um, uh, this is something that we have all probably heard before. Uh, it's a quote, a quote from Marion Williamson that Nelson Mandela gave on his uh, at his inauguration. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest that glory that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Thank you.